You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey, guys. Hey. How the hell are you guys doing? I'm doing good. Back from a week off off the horn. Now I'm on the horn, blowing the horn, honking it. Who are you on the horn with? Uh, this week I, I horned in um, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Ben Anderson, um, who is a investigative um, both uh, text and video journalist, um, previously with BBC and HBO, currently doing stuff um, on Vice News. Cool. I think so, we need to blow the horn for a couple of sponsors. Yeah. Bang! Nice yeah, work, wow, Evan. Evan. Have you been at camp where you learned how to promo? Radio camp. Radio <laughs> The only problem with that one is that we only have one sponsor oh. that I'd like to discuss. It's Tiny Letter. Aaron, what does Tiny Letter do? Well, basically, if you want to start a newsletter and you don't want to jump through a bunch of hoops and you want to just get it up and running now, that's, that's the best do. place to do. It's from MailChimp. No one does. Uh, no one does email newsletters like they do. Um, thanks to Mailchimp and Tiny Letter for their ongoing sponsorship. Here's Aaron with Ben Anderson. Welcome, Ben Anderson. Thank you. Uh, you told me that you are currently um, shadowing a boxer who's boxing this week. Is that something you can talk about now, or is that uh, under wraps? That's that's a film I'm doing. It'll come out in a few weeks' time. I'm following Danny Jacobs, who will, if he wins on Saturday night, will become the first ever cancer survivor to become a world champion. Are you like a, a boxing enthusiast? Yeah, yeah, massive. I used to box when I was a kid and uh, loved the boxing writing. And I've become, I used to work for the BBC and was like the middleman between the BBC and boxers. And oh, really? And did them good deal. So got ringside seats and got to know all the characters and half my best friends are boxers. So now. actually, I'm, I'm curious, what is like, what does being the middleman between BBC and boxers entail? I mean, BBC, when I joined, was a very white, you know, elite establishment. Yeah. And I was somewhere in between that. And, you know, I come from a working class family, but they did a bit better as I was growing up. So I was like literally the middleman between two completely foreign cultures um, and was able to just thrash out deals because every time the BBC pissed off the boxers or the boxing promoters, yeah. they would scream and shout and storm out and then I was the one who then had to somehow you know, make an agreement between the two. How did you get into BBC in, in the first place? Uh, I was trying to be a writer when I was, I think, 21 years old. Uh, I was writing lots of probably very bad articles about the Indonesian invasion of East Timor. 
and how Britain was selling weapons to Indonesia, even though they were knowing thousands of civilians were being killed in East Timor. And this was the first big foreign news story I'd ever really come across and almost was out on the street saying, you know, do you know this is happening? This is outrageous. And so how did you come upon that story as a, a unpublished writer? To be honest, I forget. I, th- I think it was John Pilger. Do you know John Pilger? No. Uh, he's like uh, like the, the the Australian. He's an Australian living in Britain, but is like our version of Howard Zinn. Okay. Um, and I think he was writing about it, and that's what first got me into it, and that's what first made me think this is this is what I want to do. I've got something here that I want to I want to cover. Yeah. Um, and I was, as I said, the articles were probably really bad, so I, I got a few very polite rejections, but they were rejections. Were you? I mean, were you doing like? first person reporting on it or were you just like reading the news in London and, and trying to put yeah. it into articles? Just just reading and kind of saying this is outrageous and must be stopped and how dare our government who claims to have an ethical foreign policy continue these sales. I mean they were, I, have, I don't know where the articles are. They, they were probably <laughs> terrible. But in the process of doing that someone yeah. approached me from Channel 4 which is... Uh, the better be, the better channel in, in the UK. The more sort of contrarian channel or it certainly yeah. was then. And they said, listen, I've got a friend who's doing a documentary about the funeral trade in the UK, and they need someone to go undercover. And I think you'd be perfect. And my CV at that point was basically, I can talk to ordinary people about the scams that are going on, yeah, and I can talk my way out of tricky situations. Um, that was it. That was my entire skill set. Um, I got a job with an undertaker. <laughs> How did you develop the uh, develop that skill set previously? Uh, I don't know. I'm mean, just someone who either looked for or got into trouble quite a lot, you know, as a as a kid. Yeah. But I sort of managed to just about get out of it before it got really bad. <laughs> yeah. And that that was it. That was all I needed for this for this job. So I, I got a job with an undertaker. Uh, I spent three months working for one undertaker. Realized I was getting amazing footage with this secret camera, which back then really wasn't secret. I mean, I had to wear this huge. What do you call it in the states? A fanny pack. Yeah. With the recorder in it, and how I didn't get caught every day, I, I, I don't know. But I did, I did three or four months overtime, unpaid, because I just thought this is such incredible footage, and people are going are gonna to be blown away by it when they see this footage. It came out just after Princess Diana's funeral. Loads of people watched it. Won a couple of awards, and at the award ceremonies were some of you know these guys I'd seen covering foreign conflicts, which is what I wanted to do. Yeah. And for the first time ever, I was in a room full of people who I wanted to be like, you know, and I wanted to have their life. Um, so that was it. I decided then and there that's what I wanted to do. And because the funeral film did so well, the BBC approached me and said, look, we're doing a very similar undercover series. We'd love you to be one of our undercover guys. And I spent three or four years working for this undercover team with a very famous reporter who I was told was like the toughest, bravest, most streetwise reporter out there. And I was living in pretty much a squat in Brixton, like a, which was a rough neighborhood of London back then. I was, I was, paying no rent it was i mean really horrible place they picked me up in this silver mercedes they took me to the steakhouse for dinner and i thought man i've landed right at the top this is the elite current affairs team in the whole of journalism in the uk in any format and then slowly i started working with this guy and he didn't know anything um i mean you know the stories i could tell you about him not being at all streetwise and nearly getting us completely caught it was it was incredible. Well, so I'm interested in in how you develop um, develop undercover work like that. I mean, well, first with the Undertaker example, I, th- I think a lot of people like sort of understand the idea of being undercover, but not quite how that works on, on a nuts and bolts level. How did you represent yourself when you got this job? And it was very weird because I was a young, fresh faced kid. Yeah. Who was turning up at dozens of Undertakers saying, "I want to become an Undertaker." Yeah. Which immediately seemed very odd. 
I mean, like, were they talking to each other? Like, hey, did you see that guy? He, that guy who came back with that strange fanny pack asking for a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fanny pack was, if anyone asked, it was a, I'd just been diagnosed as a diabetic and it was uh, emergency insulin uh, yeah. equipment, which was absolutely rubbish. And a couple of times I met people who were diabetic and, again, very nearly got caught. Yeah. Um, for some reason, eventually someone took a shine to me and took a shine to me as potential management. Um, that's how I eventually got the job. But I said, look, I want to learn the whole trade. So I'd rather start out the back with the backroom boys, you know, preparing yeah. the bodies, preparing the coffins, picking up bodies 24-7. Yeah. And that kind of impressed them as well. So that's how eventually I, I, got, I got the job. And when you're working co- like undercover in that kind of way and you know that your work has to be turned into a story, are you, are you trying to sort of stage moments that you know, like in terms of someone who's breaking the law, say, are you like – hey, you want to do that thing that I think you probably do that's illegal, like also turning in this way with the light uh, on? I mean, are you are you considering what you're getting undercover? You're considering what you're getting, but you absolutely cannot encourage. Yeah. And we were taken on a company called SCI, which was based in Texas and was worth billions. And they yeah. did sue. We knew they would sue. So if any of the footage showed me encouraging behavior, then we were really in trouble. And you can't you can't even laugh when like there were a lot of there's a lot of disrespect towards bodies for example yeah i couldn't laugh too much when that happened yeah i just had to not show that i was uncomfortable with it but not encourage it either it's a it's a really really fine line and the hardest thing and the thing that i really didn't see coming is in any industry in any bad industry you meet good people that are caught up in it you know mm. that they, they were working for it when it was a good company it went downhill they've got no other options because in their 50s they've got no other job they can do that that was the hardest part because you are you are lying to them and you know the only thing that keeps you going is you think if I bump into them in the street one day can I say to them you have to admit it was a great and important story that had to be told I'm I'm sorry that I lied to you but it, you know and it, and if there are good people in the company then you don't reveal their face or their name or their voice you know they they're not in the film but it's still very very uncomfortable to lie to everyone you meet while you're working undercover are the are the laws around that stuff different in the U S because I know that like. Like a lot of times in New York Times stories, you like you have to announce yourself as a reporter. And in, in like I, I know, uh, I think New York Times ran a um, a story about like under um, underground strip clubs in New York, and a big part of the story was explaining how they the reporter had announced himself at this underground strip club as a New York Times. It was like a just sort of humorous aside that hey, uh, reporter here, like not here for the lap dances. Uh, what are the legal like? What are the legal structures around around undercover reporting that kind? Legally, we're allowed to go undercover, but not with a camera until uh, you've got evidence that something illegal or immoral is happening. So you're not allowed to go on fishing trips. Got um, it. Once you've got the evidence and very strong evidence that something illegal or immoral is happening, then you can go undercover. Give me another example of one of these undercover investigations. Uh, I worked in a care home where the mentally disabled patients were being abused by the staff. So at what point do you say, yes, I've got evidence that there's wrongdoing. I can turn that camera on. Like what? Do, when you see it firsthand, is that sort of the turning point? Yeah. Yeah. You can't just be told um, unless you're told by lots of people. You've got to actually see it, see it firsthand. And, and I, mean, I think it's changed now, but back in those days, you'd normally spend at least three or four months undercover total. Wow. Uh, now it seems like it's a lot less time undercover. I was going to say, so you can only do 
three stories a year then if yeah. you're going undercover that long. Or sometimes you're doing two or three at once. I mean, at one point I was I was a pig farmer during the day and then a bouncer <laughs> at night, which was... <laughs> well, I mean, what did this do to your personal life that you were pig farming and bouncing simultaneously? I mean, it, 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 it ruins it. And the, the bouncing one was particularly tough because it was in a in a club in central London. Yeah. A couple of times people who knew me would come up to me and say, oh, how are you doing? You're not at the yeah. BBC anymore, you know, in front of this other bouncer that I was working for. Um, that that was that was really. Did, tough. I mean, did you get blown at any of these locations? Did no, you? No, the funerals one is the closest they ever came to getting blown, and the, yeah. the the camera was in this fanny pack, and then there was a wire which went sort of up to your armpit and then across and in, yep. into a glasses case in my lapel, and there was a small hole in the glasses case, um, and the guy offered me a job. He had admitted that they throw babies around in the mortuary in the job interview before it even started. Um, this is the same company I'd been working for before, and. Uh, he said, yeah, yeah, we can start. And in fact, I think I've got a jacket that will fit you. Try this jacket on. And I couldn't take the jacket off because I was wired to, to the fanny pack. No, oh, no. So I said, um, okay, I'll try it on a second. I just need to go to the bathroom. I really need to go to the bathroom. He said, the bathroom's out in the back of the yard. Um, just try the jacket on. And this lasted like 20 minutes. And in the end, I said something about having acne all over my back. And I was very shy about, you know, the mess on the back of the shirt. And he didn't buy that either and started thinking I was acting very suspiciously. So I just stormed out of the room and into the bathroom got into the bathroom and looked in the mirror with relief that it was over, but I hadn't locked the bathroom door. So he followed me in and <laughs> I just had to wrestle my way out of there and out onto the street and go and just, just thought, you know, I just said, look, I'm not going to work for this guy. He knows something's up. I mean, people know something's up without necessarily guessing that you're an undercover reporter. Right. And this was 15, 16 years ago. So back then, undercover reporters with secret cameras were even more, you know, far more rare than they are today. Do you, I mean, do you ever just like, do you ever have an urge, a nostalgic urge to just put on the secret camera and, and go back to the uh, the undercover uh, beat? I, I did it again recently. I did oh, it really? in, uh, in Dubai. I did a, I spent two months in Dubai filming the, the Bangladeshi and Indian laborers building all these golf courses and skyscrapers and then posed also as a rich investor who wanted to buy one of these villas on this huge development. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can still do, do it. Do you hit like a point where you're too, like too high profile to be able to pull something like that off or is there always somewhere down the road where people don't know you. I mean, Google has kind of killed it. I mean, that now I think if you're going to do a serious long-term undercover investigation, you've got to be a complete newbie. So at what point did you shift from the sort of uh, exposés of uh, British employers to to more like combat kind of stuff and, and more conflict zones? The first chance I got. So after three or four years undercover, I eventually started appearing on camera occasionally. So I would go undercover somewhere, and then this famous reporter would turn up, and he'd sort of interview me about what I'd found in my time there. Yeah. Um, and luckily for me, the controller of BBC Two at the time said, look, I'm kind of getting fed up with the famous guy, but the kid seems good. Ask the kid to come up with some ideas for a series. I was racking my brains for months trying to come up with a series. I'd been to Burma at that point and snuck in from Thailand and spent some time with the Shan State Army. And we'd, we were hoping to meet a guy called Yord Sirk, who was at that point the world's most wanted opium dealer. Um, and one day he pulled up in this in this convoy of, of uh, SUVs with with arm, you know, heavily armed bodyguards. And he said, "You're the BBC reporter." And I said, "Yes." And he said, "We're playing badminton now, England versus Burma." And we played badminton in the middle of the you know the Burmese rainforest um, under armed guard. And that, so so that kind of made me even more convinced this is what I wanted to do for a living. Anyway, I was, I was trying to come up with an idea for a series, and George Bush made his Axis of Evil speech. And there was an A list, so Iraq, Iran, North Korea, and then um, a B list was added, uh, Syria, Libya, Cuba. And there was no axis between those six countries, except none of them had anything to do with 9-11. And I found out I could get into all six of them on a tourist visa. 
So me and one other guy went with a tiny handheld camera as tourists, and we got access to all six countries, uh, got an amazing three-week tour of North Korea where they showed us everything, and really believed that if they showed us everything and we filmed it and we showed it to our friends back in the UK, they would realize that North Korea is a better country than every other country in the world. I mean, really, you know, they were evangelical mm. about it. And because we were so restricted with this one tiny camera, by accident, we sort of invented a new style of current affairs filmmaking. It was, there was almost a dogma set of rules. And that, and that camera was probably quite new at that time to, to be able to take a camera that small. Yeah, this is like pre-GoPro era. Yeah, yeah, this was uh, 2002. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, but a, a small handheld camcorder. And, you know, you turn up in, in North Korea and, and you start filming straight away and they just think, oh, this is how Westerners act. They, they always they film this everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't think you're making a documentary. I'm, I'm interested in that relationship because I, I was, um, in preparing for this, um, we'll get to the Vice News stuff, but I was watching Vice News put up an, uh, a new piece, uh, I think yesterday, uh, embedded with ISIS uh, in Iraq or in the case of North Korea, where you're going somewhere uh, and uh, cultivating a subject who is antagonistic towards the United States or, or Britain, what, what, where does that, where does that re- what relationship start? When, when you come into North Korea and you got your little video camera, what do you say to the North Koreans? And, and how, do you, how do you represent your intentions, I guess? I thought that the North Korea film was going to be the most difficult film to make. And they would say, you can film this statue, but make sure you get the whole statue in and don't move and don't get these people. Yeah, that's, I mean, generally when I've read about North Korea, it's like, stay at the hotel, don't go anywhere where we don't tell you and like never leave your guide. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, I, I, I was young and I wanted to be this earnest international correspondent. So I thought I was going to be challenging the minders every day, challenging them with all the research I'd done before I went out there and probably getting kicked out at some point. Yeah. And the exact opposite happened. They were so charming. Um, and, and I mean, they just they just broke our hearts straight away. You know, I mean, they, they, I remember once there was the, the female guide from the, from the government said, um, no, no, we like some American things. We like that American singer. What's his name? He, his name begins with E. We said, Elvis? Yes, Elvis, that's him. We like, we like him. But we don't want to go to the UK, for example, because we've read Charles Dickens and we realize how bad capitalism is. <laughs> um, and so we just we ended up thinking, let's just show them as they want to be seen. And that right. will reveal far more than it would if, if we went there and did you know, the, the, the predictable thing of saying, but we've heard there's famine and we've heard there are, there are prison camps and they deny it. Um, and actually, I think it did reveal far more. And, and you know, I've been, to, I've been to Iraq under Saddam Hussein. I've been to um, Libya under Gaddafi. And it's not hard to meet people who say, look, we say all this stuff about our great leader, but we hate him and we can't get, wait to get rid of him. That's not the case in North Korea. And just after we left, um, there was a train station that burnt down and two North Koreans died running in to save the portraits of the great and the dear leader. And I absolutely believe that. And you get that from the film. You get how dedicated they are. To the, to the great leader. Um, and I think we wouldn't have got that had we have gone the antagonistic route. So in a way, your subject then becomes not like, oh, can I get an interview with a top government official? But the subject of the film becomes the guide or the sort of ordinary people you come across Absolutely. while you're there. And it was called Holidays in the Axis of Evil. And yeah. it was cause kind of a guide from the streets up. And, and one of the rules we had was don't interview a government official you know, in his office with a flag behind him behind his desk. And right. we didn't do that. Didn't do that once. So what is like when you say that you've done you do research before that? I mean, I most when you read about North Korea, you read research about these countries like within within that 
I think now no longer is it, I think the axis of evil is over. Have we have we demoted that term? I don't yeah, know. I think so. Yeah. Um, when you look at those countries, most of what you're getting is sort of a high level political overview. You're not getting what day to day ordinary life is. Do you do any sort of research that prepares you for that? Like, what do you what do you go in with? I do. I read everything I can possibly get my hands on, but I go knowing and 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 sort of forcing myself to be to be ready to discard most of it. You know, straight away, because because it's it's amazing. You being a documentary maker and a writer, you soon learn that some writers, the lazier writers, can get away with murder. And you know, they can hear something in a bar or from their taxi driver yeah. and put it in the article. If you're having to capture something on camera, it has to really be happening for you right. to get it on camera. So I would I would take all these all these articles I'd found and I'd highlight all these passages and, and something I had to find out about and get on camera. And soon you'd find out it didn't actually exist. So I'd read everything, but but be absolutely willing to discard it, and and also realize that if you're there for two or three weeks, you're probably going to see more interesting stuff than the people who wrote the articles who haven't been there, or who were there for a day or two. So so that that taught me the value of just hanging around for as long as possible, and that's been the model from then on. Is just don't don't go somewhere for a day or two looking for the thing you read about. Go for five or six weeks, and maybe after five or six weeks, you'll start finally figuring out what's really going on and start seeing what's really going on. Hey, it's Aaron with a quick word from our sponsor, GoDaddy. Uh, Maybe you've been thinking about putting up a website. You're going to need a domain name. In my life, I have registered so many domain names. But maybe you're registering your first domain name and you should go to GoDaddy. They really are the simple, easy place to do so. Um, You can enter promo code FORM199 when you're checking out and you'll get a .com domain for just $1.99. That's for long-form listeners. There are some limitations. Go to GoDaddy.com for details. Thanks to them. Here I am with Ben Anderson. You're somewhat unique among people who have been on this show and that you are carrying a video camera during most of your reporting. Do you, do you also take notes? I mean, like, how does the, the, the process of transitioning that first-person experience and the video to, to written language goes? Are you taking notes? Are you writing sentences and impressions down? Like, video is both very concrete, but it doesn't convey necessarily some of the emotional impression. And I'm assuming also occasionally things happen that you can't catch properly. I'll I'll try and write a, a very rough diary every night, yeah. um, which sometimes turns into an article or something. I'll I'll keep notes all the time, but but in some instances the video can be the best the best notebook possible. And when I wrote my book about Afghanistan, I watched every tape I'd ever shot in Afghanistan and got every word in 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 um, Pashtun diary translated accurately. Mm. And and that I mean that was the biggest revelation of all was was hearing what the Afghan soldiers were actually saying. Does that mean so you're not actually totally aware of what you're getting video that then you're decoding later? Yeah, and I'm getting bits of it. I understand bits of it, and there's yeah. an, there's a translator there who's translating bits of it. But the translator is often trying to avoid an argument, or just hope the patrol of the day goes smoothly. So, I mean, the the second last film I did in Afghanistan, this is what winning looks like. We, me and me and the one marine who was trying to stop the police doing all the things they were doing, which included uh, drug abuse, theft, kidnap, child abuse, child uh, murder. Um, we confronted this this police commander, and he he defended his his commanders. He he defended the abduction, rape, and murder of children. So um, the interpreter said uh, the boys like being on the bases at night. They like giving their bodies. 
That was his translation, and, and which was pretty shocking. It wasn't until I got back to London and got it translated accurately that I knew what he was really saying. And I don't know if you can bleep things on no, this. But uh, hey, this is a privately produced podcast. We do oh, okay. whatever we want. Well, he said, if my men don't fuck the asses of those little boys, what should they fuck? The pussies of their own grandmothers. Um, you know, that, that was the language he used to justify the abduction, rape, and murder of, of little boys. And this, is, this was a town where more British soldiers had died than any other town in Afghanistan, which had just been handed over to the Afghan security forces. This is what we were handing over to. This is what we're leaving behind. Um, you know, this is what all this fighting for so many years and hundreds of billions of dollars and how, how many thousands of lives has been, has been for. Um, and, it, and it makes you realize why people in the South and the East will say the Taliban actually weren't that bad. Yes, they're harsh, but there's no child rape and abduction or, or very little. It does happen in some Taliban areas. Um, and we have you know, security and justice, which is our main two concerns are security and justice. And the Taliban do a better job of providing that than, than the Afghan security forces often do. I'm interested. So was that was that film your first uh, first film for Vice News? The this the this is uh, I'm going to mangle the name. This is winning. This is what winning looks. <laughs> this like. is what winning looks Which like. Which was a quote from General Allen on his last day in. in oh yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I had a friend in London who worked who, who ran the the London magazine Vice, yeah. and he kept on trying to get me to do stuff, and I, I didn't really take them that seriously. This was like seven eight years ago. Right. And then finally he said, "Look, we're all flying out to Spike Jones's house for the weekend because Vice want to start making documentaries." would love you to come to the house for the weekend. I thought, well, I've got to take this seriously. This sounds great. So I went out there and we watched the North Korea documentary. We watched my Liberia documentary, a few others, had a great weekend. And so from that point on, and I think that was seven years ago, um, whenever I could, I got it into my contract that I could cut a different version of the film six weeks or eight weeks after broadcast for Vice. Um, and this is what winning looks like was actually I thought a much better version than the BBC version. Oh, so that was produced by the BBC and then screened on Vice. Yeah, yeah. The, the BBC. Wow. Some some of the surprised they agreed to that. BBC's audience is is getting older and older all the time. You know, yeah. young people just aren't watching in the UK, just yeah. as they're not watching here. Yeah. So I was able to say, look, this gets you. Right. This young audience you're so desperate for. Ah, um, and they, they they agreed to it, and the the BBC version was thirty minutes long. It had to go out before nine pm, so it was the language was heavily censored. Um, and Vice, I said to Vice, look, this needs to be a ninety minute film, and I need to put this stuff in there word for word. And they said, sure, no problem, go for it. And I think it was actually a much better film ah. than the BBC version. Do, but do you can does that relationship endure now, or now are you are you pure Vice News now? I'm now staff at Vice, and I work on the HBO series and and Vice News. Yeah, yeah. But we're actually doing a film in Afghanistan for Vice soon, which we're selling to the BBC. Okay. <laughs> it's a it's a, it's a buy sell market. Uh, that's interesting. I, I had I didn't realize that uh, I didn't even realize that that kind of a relationship was uh, possible. I mean. I w- that's um, that sort of reframes what my next question was going to be, which was I was going to ask you how is it different being out in in the field in a combat zone when you're working for a smaller outfit like Vice News that maybe hasn't had the experience of someone being kidnapped. Actually, they now have, but um, has less sort of built-in experience with putting r- reporters in war zones versus like BBC, which has people around the world in combat zones all the time. But I guess you're kind of working for both. Um, like uh, in that case, when it's for BBC and Vice, if if, uh, if you get kidnapped, who, who gets the phone call first? Uh, it would be Vice. I've, I've done five or six films in, in hostile areas over the last six or seven months for Vice only. Okay. So I know what it's like to work for them yeah. alone. And, and to be honest, it's no different. I mean, if I'm in... I was in Sudan recently with the rebels who are one day going to attack Khartoum. If that goes completely wrong at some point, I'm on my own. Yeah. You know, there's there's really nothing else, that nothing that anyone in London or New York 
can do. I mean, there, there is a security guy who the BBC or Vice would hire and who would do all he could to negotiate a ransom or send someone in to try and... Whatever it would be. Yeah. But but anyone can hire that guy. Right. The organisation itself, a bunch of people in an office, really can't do much for you when you're in these situations. I mean, I, I think my first real war that was really bad that I covered was Liberia. And so I did all this training with the BBC and we went through all these risk assessments and it felt like you had this huge, great organisation behind you. And then two weeks later, I'm in rebel-held northern Liberia, surrounded by 300... 13-year-olds with AKs and RPGs and snakes wrapped around their necks and they're drunk and they're high and they're pointing guns at us. And I'm thinking, some guy at the back of the BBC can't do anything to help <laughs> me in this situation. Right. Nothing whatsoever. So I, I think you're on your own. Um, you had said, you've said, um, I think actually this is, there's like a Vice intro to, to Ben Anderson. One of the other perks of Vice is you get kind of like a, like a trading card video like meet Ben Anderson um, and you said that one of the things that that had drawn you to journalism was that you felt like these are the things people should be talking about people should be talking about these kids in Sudan who are going to someday take Khartoum people should be talking about these uh, police officers in Afghanistan these are the stories that you would expect to be front page news and they're not um, now that you've actually done it as as a job for going on 15 20 years now um has that changed at all in your mind? I mean, what do you feel like this stuff is more front page news than it was previously? Or um, have you come to understand why it doesn't get the c- coverage it does? I think it's probably less front page than news than it was back then. Yeah. The really depressing thing now is it seems like the international media can handle one foreign story at a time and that's it. It doesn't matter what's happening elsewhere in the world. You know, it was yeah. Afghanistan for a while. It was Sudan for a while. It was... Syria, you know, now it, it was Gaza for a while. Now it's probably going to be Iraq for a while, and and doesn't you know, and and people realise this. So so when the attention was on Gaza, Assad definitely stepped up attacks and killed hundreds of people in a few days, and it went almost unreported. That's very depressing. How do you frame sort of the balance between journalism and entertainment in your own work? Do you consciously do things that you think will help put these stories on the front page or help? say draw on a younger audience like is that actually part of part of your task as a journalist is to make things entertaining so that people care about them and don't pass them by i mean the only thing i guess i do to try and make them entertaining is to show things actually happening yeah rather than get people talking about what's happening but the goal is always to show what would be happening if i wasn't there so that's the only thing i think i do to try and make it more uh, entertaining i mean i'm i'm a host as vice call it you know a reporter and i'd rather not be for three or four years, I was just alone with a camera, and I was much more comfortable doing that. Uh. So I guess that's something I sort of, that's a compromise I make because people say they like to have a, a conduit to the story. I think. Why do you not like that? Like, why do you not like being a host? My favorite films haven't got hosts. My favorite documentaries haven't got hosts. And I, I think, I mean, I, there was a moment in, in Marja. I was in Marja in 2010 with the U.S. Marines. It was the biggest operation since Obama had, had you know, chosen a new strategy in Afghanistan and we were we were dropped into the middle of Marja which was the largest Taliban controlled town and they had to just fight their way out of the middle of this town um, and it was three or four days of, of the worst fighting I've ever seen and I met this one Marine who's the most idealistic Marine I've ever met idealistic in a good sense you know he, he read Christopher Hitchens had met Christopher Hitchens a few times in DC and decided to go and help Iraq and Afghanistan his men fired a rocket into the wrong house and killed three kids and a woman he then had to go and meet the family and give them $10,000 condolence payment. 
And to the credit of the US Marines, I said I want to be at that meeting. They came to get me and said, we're having that meeting now, come along. Whereas when I was out with the British forces, they, they tried to actually force me out of the room when I was filming that meeting. Um, anyway, I, I filmed this meeting. It went on for three or four hours. Everyone was in tears. One of the most incredible things I think I've ever filmed. And if I was doing a BBC film or a Vice film, the normal thing would be to turn the camera on myself and say, oh my God, this is one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen. But who cares what I think? Yeah. You know, once I've covered that scene, and once I've covered the father of the kids, the Marine who's having to apologize, even though he thought he'd come to, to help the people of Afghanistan, who cares what I think? I, yeah. I think it's the least interesting thing in that entire sequence. So I stopped doing it. And, and that film actually ended up on HBO as a feature-length film, and I think was a much better film for it. So I, I do want to get back into that mm. kind of filmmaking. And I actually think it goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning. I, I actually still want to be a writer. <laughs> And I'm sort of trying to be a writer yeah. with, with a camera rather than a pen, if that makes sense. What, what does that mean to you, to be a writer? To be alone, to get somewhere very fascinating, to stay long enough to really begin to understand what's happening here, and to be invisible. Uh, you know, just to disappear into a corner and just soak up what's happening. Like I said before, what, what would have happened had you not have been there? Mm. You know, it's very easy to turn up and say, we're a big Western film crew, we need action tell us this, show us this, do this, and then leave two days later and come back with what might be an okay film. The hard thing is to build up relationships with people where they trust you to say, we're going to let you cover us no matter what happens. We're going to let you join us on an operation which might go badly wrong. And we're going to let you continue filming no matter what happens. Even if we kill three kids and a woman, we're going to let you continue filming because we trust you to to be fair with the, mm. with the final product. That's, that's the hard thing. I think that's what a really good writer would do um, and that's what a really good filmmaker or photographer would do, and that's what I think a lot of news reporters don't do. I think that when, like, when I've um, when I've watched Vice, and maybe my experience is unique here, but like part of the reason that the the host dynamic is uh, engaging, regardless, maybe it doesn't make a good documentary filmmaking, but I think part of the reason why you know Vice can get a few million plays on some of these things that you couldn't get a million plays with. Uh, more detached news is there's a certain fantasy element of when I watch them I'm fantasizing about going to North you know being like a um, world traveling reporter and going into places like North Korea like it has a little bit more it's a little bit more like adventure because you're watching someone go on the adventure you're not just simply watching what's happening in these places you can't go is that like is that something you're conscious of like I People who, who are critical of Vice say I, one of the criticisms I've heard leveled is kind of like, whoa, we just got to Africa and it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this sort of like the fact that um, the reporter is almost like amazed by what's happening and is kind of like excited by it. How do you feel about presenting yourself in that sort of a situation? I mean, I, I've never done that. I can think of some examples of, of yeah. Vice programs where that has absolutely happened, yeah. but that's a few years ago now, and I think they've grown up. And I think yeah. all of them now, they're either they were already very good foreign correspondents who have recently been hired, or they've been at Vice for a while and have, have really pretty seasoned travelers now. Yeah. So they've grown up to the point where they're no longer amazed by the fact that they're there. They're amazed by the story. And the story is what they want to now get across. So, I mean, if you watch the last series of HBO, for example, I it's don't think they For anyone who like, has only seen a uh, Vice magazine at a skate shop, uh, go steal your parents' HBO Go account <laughs> and uh, check out check out the, the first. And now I think about se- about second season's done now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah. finished it a while ago. Two full seasons, and they're really excellent. But I want to I actually come back to what you said about 
your sort of ideal is being a fly on the wall, just showing what would happen if you weren't there. When you go somewhere like Iraq or Afghanistan, and there are million, there's a million stories you could tell. I mean, if it was a fly on the wall, it would be a million flies on a million walls. So when you gravitate towards a story like this commander who is abusing children or your most recent piece, which is about interpreters who are left in Iraq, how do you pick a story? And, and, and what, what makes a good story for you once you're there and you want to be that fly on the wall? Um, I mean, the, the, the police sort of misbehavior was, I, I really stumbled upon that. I mean, I wanted to go to this town where I'd been several times before. And I'd been there with the British who'd suffered horrible losses. I'd been there with the US Marines who suffered horrible losses. So I wanted to just go and see what it was all for. And I knew it would be chaos, but I had no idea it would be just such disgusting criminal behavior like, like I saw. And in, in southern or eastern Afghanistan, you really can't move around that much. Um, so you get somewhere and you're kind of restricted. So you, you just do what you can within the area. Um, luckily, I guess in that case, I, I came across this awful police force doing all kinds of awful things. But there wasn't really much else I could have done at that point. I mean, I'd love to do a story about women's rights in Afghanistan because, you know, the Taliban and our allies really don't have too many disagreements about how to treat women. And you still hear people say, oh, but if the Taliban come back, it's a huge blow for women. You think, well, just examine the behavior of some of the people we put in power. Right. Um, so how, like, when you're tracking that story, you, you get dropped in this town. How long do you have before you need to like lock in and say, I'm going for this story? Do you have false starts down other roads? Lots of false starts, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Sangin story, I, when I arrived, I thought it was going to be one of the worst trips I'd ever had to Afghanistan because I think it was 500 U.S. infantry Marines were at this base, but they were never leaving the base. They were literally lifting weights and watching DVDs and doing nothing else. And I thought, I'm fucked. There's, I'm, I'm going to get nothing out of this trip. Right. And then I found out, there were these two very small teams, one team advising the Afghan army, one team advising the police, who were actually going out and trying to encourage better behavior. And and there was this incredible major who was actually doing what he was sent there to do and try and make them behave like a, you know, a, a police force who would police in, in any sense that you or I would understand and was really fighting the, the, the huge corruption and criminal behavior of the police, even though he was actually getting punished for it. Because at that point, the mission was we're leaving, let's say, we're leaving with our heads held high, having achieved our goals. Mm. The main mission was was for the people back at home to believe it was all worth it, even if the reality on the ground was the exact opposite of that. Um, so he, he actually got in trouble for, for, for really trying to do something about this abuse. But in that instance, I was just very lucky to come across him. And I think because he'd reported the abuse so much and been ignored, I think he was grateful someone had turned up who was willing to listen to him and you know follow him in in the work he was doing is that is there a danger when you lock on to someone like that who has sort of a, a mission of their own and you're a mouthpiece for that mission do you have to be critical of you know being misled or being used as, as sort of a tool for someone else's agenda in a, in a situation like that i don't think so i mean i, I you know I, I spent i didn't actually spend that much time with him but i spent a lot of time with the villagers and the mm -hmm. police and other people um so no i don't and, and, and the u.s marines have, have really impressed me and i mean something strange happened in afghanistan and i've been covering it for seven years and when i first went there i i turned up like i always turn up i'm just a kid from england who doesn't really know what's going on let me tag along. I'm willing to go through the same shit you go through. Yeah. But because I've been covering it for seven years, and this happened without me even really noticing it, people actually started respecting my opinion about things in Afghanistan. So I'd go out with, with you know, fairly senior officers from the U.S. Marines who'd yeah. maybe not been to Afghanistan before or only done one tour. 
and if I was willing to show how bad it was for them, they were perfectly happy for me to have my own opinion. Yeah. Um, and I, I was really surprised to what extent that was true. Um, as long as I showed how bad it was, I could, on the political side of things, I could say whatever I wanted. And when I wrote the book, I actually met up with a few people in the book and said, look, I don't think you're going to like this book and the way you're portrayed in the book because you were a believer. And I sort of say that it all went completely wrong. And to a man, they said, we agree with you. Everyone I've met who's actually been there and actually been deployed out on the front lines has has come to the same view. Um, so I haven't had any conflicts with anyone trying to change my story or, or or what I'm saying. When you're when you're working alone, I mean, d- does anyone have your back? Does anyone know where you are if uh, if you disappear while you're on your own? I, I send a text message from my satellite phone to someone every night, and that that's it. But I, I love working on my own. It, it forces you to be as disciplined as you should be you know if there's a horrible i've been in a few conflicts where no matter what conflict you're covering there is a hotel somewhere that everyone stays in and if you want you could spend your entire time in that hotel eating very well having affairs chatting to other western journalists getting information from them which you then put in your stories you know i think that's almost worse than not being there because you give the impression you're reporting but you're not actually getting out there and seeing it for yourself if you travel alone, completely alone, you're forced to be with your subjects 24 hours a day. I mean, in Afghanistan, you're literally sleeping sometimes a foot away from your subjects. You're eating with them. You're going for walks with them. And, and after a while, they forget why you're there and what you're doing. And, and you, you, you get to see everything. So I, I, would, I would much rather work alone. And again, that's, that's like, you know, when I first started doing this and wanted to be a writer, that's what I envisioned doing was just disappearing somewhere for a few months yeah. and just taking little notes each night and then coming back with something that that no one else has got when you're using video as your um, source material for creating a book like this what what's the process of of translating the video into text like like how do you go about that what gets gained and what gets lost i've only done it twice and it's a it's a a very long process the book i i just watched every tape i'd ever shot which was hundreds and hundreds of hours and then wrote down everything every quote everything i thought was interesting every detail i thought was interesting and just blurt it all out onto the page. Yeah. And then this ridiculously long editing process starts. And it's, I forget who it was, I think it was James Wood wrote a piece about writing in The New Yorker. And he said, the first draft is a real slog. The second draft is hard work. The third draft, you start actually enjoying yourself occasionally. And then the fourth draft, you start actually thinking, I want people to read this bit and this bit and this bit. And it's that, but times 10. I mean, it takes, takes forever. And The Interpreters was never supposed to be an ebook as well. I just suddenly was organizing all the transcripts and, and I had 120,000 words of amazing stories from these interpreters. So I went to, to a guy called Sterling at Vice who's, who's head of multi-platforms and said, look, I think I could write a really good 20, 25,000 word ebook, most of which would be in the interpreter's own words. And I just gave him a few paragraphs from them of, of their own stories and it was just such powerful stuff and he agreed straight away. And this is another great thing about Vice is it, that was a, a three minute conversation and then suddenly an ebook was happening. And there was someone designing it, and there was someone editing it. And it was, you know, it was fantastic. If I, if I was at the BBC saying I want to do an ebook, there would be six meetings over four months with ten people, yeah, five hundred emails, and eventually it would be a reason why it's not worth doing an ebook. Right. One of the things I noted, I watched, I watched the the film first, and then I read the book, and I, I was doing that thing where I was like. Uh, like noticing the differences, you know, or noticing the the differences in the experience. And for me, the main thing that I felt while I was reading it as compared to watching it was you have more empathy when you're watching a person, you know, once you like one of the guys is really handsome and 
I'm a heterosexual man. I don't know why this affects me, but I felt worse for him because he's like this really sort of handsome modern guy who's stuck uh, in the situation where he's going to get his head cut off and, and right. he can't leave. Yeah. yeah. W- when you're doing something like that text, like how do you, what are the sort of unique challenges uh, of, e- of each format, uh, as particularly when you're doing them together? I mean, I, I, I love the book format. You know, if you said to me, as people often do, what, what 10 documentaries should I watch that will change my life? Yeah. I struggle to think of 10. If someone says, what are the 50 or 100 books I should read mm-hmm. that will change my life? I could reel off 100 easily straight away because it, there is so much more to it. And even a feature length documentary, which is 90 minutes, the editing process is still brutal. And there's still so much stuff you have to leave out. Yeah. Because people won't sit down and watch even a has- handsome-looking character who you love. They won't yeah. watch him just talking for 15 minutes straight. So it's, it's, it's always a major frustration of documentary work, of, you know, is how much amazing stuff you leave out. That said, I don't know how many people have watched the Interpreter's documentary, but it might be millions. Yeah, I think... It, I don't know how many people have, watched, have read the e-book, but it's probably... Probably 10, not millions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that balance. And, and I could write... I could, you know, let's say I wrote... I don't know, King Leopold's Ghost, which I think is one of my favorite books of all time. And let's say it sold 30,000 copies. Weigh that up against the documentary about the subject, which goes into nowhere near as much depth, anywhere near as, as, as good a style. And it'll be millions watch it. So maybe that's an argument for, for doing both at the same time rather than one or the other. Yeah. Do you think that the documentaries do fulfill, uh, you know, in the, that sort of mission of why is this stuff not on the front page is changing the format to sort of match... Uh, the entertainment tastes of today's youth is that is that a reason to do video yeah and that one of the good things about moving to the states and doing stuff for vice and vice on hbo and vice news is that it does feel like you are actually reaching a new audience i mean my my panorama documentary at the bbc would get two and a half three million viewers but you'd think i'm preaching to the converted yeah you know the people who are watching these documentaries are the people who watch 60 minutes every sunday for example um, they already have an opinion. I might be changing that opinion slightly, but is that is that worth risking your legs for? Yeah. To change someone's opinion slightly? Uh, I don't know. Whereas now, the documentaries and the style, and, and I'm only now realizing how little of this stuff there is in the US. I mean, I haven't yet found a US news channel I can watch because it's just people making stuff up behind desks. I mean, it's it's awful, a bit beyond awful. Uh, there's some great radio shows, but but... HBO doc- documentaries Monday night do some great stuff. PBS does some great stuff. Yeah, Frontline is good. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. else is there? I mean, yeah. It's amazing how little of this stuff there is. And and you know Shane at Vice has has completely ignored, or I'm not even he's even aware of this rule. When you work for the Times or the BBC or Channel Four, you're always told young people don't care about international current affairs, um, and they almost have to be tricked into watching it. So a celebrity has to be attached, or there has to be a new angle to get them to watch. And I've always thought that was that was bullshit. Um, and Vice is saying, no, just just present it as it is. Uh, don't dumb it down, but also don't lecture people from from these places. And they'll watch, and, and they seem to be proving that to be true. And, and just, just people I meet on the street seem to be very interested in, in all of these foreign stories. They just don't know where to go to see it being covered well. One of the things that you say in, the bo- in your book is that in every war zone you've been in, or every combat conflict zone that you've been in, Anywhere in the world, the one unifying quality is that the experience is nothing like the way the media and the government have portrayed it. I can't really speak to the government part, but do you think that's an inherent quality of, of the limitations of media, or is that actually a flaw in our current media? I mean, I think, I think there are brilliant photographers and writers out there. They're just really not that widely 
you're followed by people. Yeah. Um, I mean, even Fox News, which I guess is the most popular news channel in, in the US. I hope not, but that sounds uh, right. But the viewing figures are, are tiny yeah. when you think of the population of the US. I mean, the viewing figures for the most popular newspapers and, and news shows here are less than they are in the UK, even though we have, I think, a sixth of the population. Yeah. Um, so even if the media coverage was really good, most people just aren't paying attention. The numbers are that most young people don't aren't going to ever get cable. That you know, all of these, even the delivery platforms are are declining. But I sometimes do wonder, like when I've had a, I've talked to to a number of war reporters, and that's a consistent thing: is people don't get it. But this, what you see, is not what it's like. And I wonder is if that's because we're doing it wrong, or it's because there's something like intrinsic to the to the complexity of these places that literally makes it impossible to sit at home and and understand them. I mean, you know, if if, if we were going to talk about a particular country or issue, I mean, maybe between us, we could come up with a few books that really, in our minds, nailed right. the experience of a of a of a country. You know, not that many, and that that's books, documentaries. There's there's even less, right? I think because you can't fit everything into ninety minutes. There's there's no way. I mean, collectively, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff you can read together that gives you a good sense. But watch, and not that many people have the time. I mean, who's got the time to read a book, watch three documentaries, and read two thirteen thousand word New Yorker pieces? When you put together a story, like say, like the story about the commander abusing stars, is it important to you that that story is sort of emblematic or like a like a microcosm of the larger conflict? Is that is are you looking for a small story that tells the big story? Absolutely, always, yeah. And and one of the criticisms I got after that film from the from the UK government in particular was, you're going to Sangin. Sangin's always been a really bad, hostile. Uh, it's an town. exception. Yeah, yeah, and and absolute bullshit. I mean, I've spoken to people advising the police in in supposedly safe provinces in in the north. And they said they had exactly the same experience. I mean, you, you speak to any UK or US infantryman who's been to Afghanistan and ask if the police um, abuse young boys. And, and I'm sure they will have had experience of that. Direct experience of, you know, even seeing boys getting dragged into or even hearing boys. I've been told soldiers going onto a base and hearing boys being raped in a, in a room somewhere and not being able to stop it. it, it it's absolutely common. So... I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put out a film that made it look like the situation was worse than it was, or, or that there was clearly an exception yeah. where everything else was going great. Or unrelated. You know, you wouldn't yeah. do a story that's about a boy and his donkey in Afghanistan. You, the, these things have to tell tell a larger. Tale. And that, that's always what you're. And, and you know, the, the, the problem you asked me about before. That's a way of answering that. Is I can't tell the story of the whole conflict in the whole country, but I can tell you a story which is ver- a very common experience for for many Afghans. Just in. Uh, Booking you uh, for this uh, this uh, for this interview, I can tell that you have an extremely uh, busy life um, where you're tracking a lot of stuff at once. Are are you able to have like a, a normal social life or a normal? You know, do you is this a twenty four hour a day job for you? It is, yeah. And I've I've I mean I've I've been sick a few times recently. I've been really trying to to switch off. And I went to Jamaica two years ago for five days. And I've I've never felt so good. Like I woke up at seven thirty in the morning feeling great, which never ever happens. So I'm trying to do that again soon. Like trying to get two weeks off, but there's just always something going on that I'd I'd, I'd rather be doing. But but yeah, I mean, I said to you I was sick. I'm I'm I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm I, I do need, and I'm getting old as well. So I do need to start. I was going to say, like, is there a, I think you said 14 years uh, in, in war zones. I mean, is there an expiration date on this kind of a life? I mean, I think when I can't keep up with people, you know, when I'm someone who 
slows people down and as a result can't get the access i mean at the minute that's my thing is that i can i can keep up with u.s marines in afghanistan and i can endure what they endure for a couple of months and that's yeah. what gets me the access for example you know yeah. um what once that's no longer the case then yeah i think i'll have to think about changing slightly does the risk bother you like of continually rolling the dice over and over again sometimes but then i think who was it uh Oliver Reed, I think, said his fear of violence is not as bad as his fear of his fear of violence. <laughs> and it's not, I'm not saying that, but it's, it's, I just can't say no. You know, if I know something's happening somewhere, I just, I really want to be there and I really want to cover it. And it's, it's, it's kind of, I mean, we've mentioned a few really great writers in this interview. I, I can't write like them. So I, you know, I think I have to not make up for it, but you have to play to your strengths. And my strengths are I can get somewhere and just stick it out for a long time. Um, so, for the time being, I think I've got to I've got to stick with that. There are people and people who who cover topics very obsessively that have sort of a, a finite date to them, and we might have thought that the Iraq and Afghanistan wars would be finite, but they're kind of proving to be not finite at all. Um, I mean, I'm guessing when you first went to Afghanistan, you wouldn't have thought, "Hey, in a decade, I could probably come back here and do the exact same thing," like. When when do you know that this is the last trip to Afghanistan? I don't think I ever will. You don't. Um, I mean, Don McCullen, you know, the the photographer who I, I got to know recently, he's incredible. He went to Syria recently in his seventies, I think. Um, I mean, I always thought that I'm, I'm single. I always thought if I got married and had kids, that that's what would change things. If if my wife said, I I really can't live with you spending six weeks away and, yeah. and me thinking you you might be about to get hurt or killed. Yeah. If 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 she said that, I think that's what could could make me make me change um at the same time i know a lot of journalists who who you know act like they have ptsd yeah and i don't know if this is a, a sort of a survival mechanism but i just think come on we're, we're we're vips in these conflicts you know we've got a return ticket in our pocket we know we're probably going to eat a meal within a few days um we know we can get out of there if we need to um you know you're, you're surrounded by people who are so poor that that they're, they're, maybe their family members have already been killed and they still can't leave and they're living there and they've lived there for their entire lives so compared to that i you know i, I can't really take the idea that i've i've suffered and and i you know i need to stop and 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 you know go to a spa for a few i, I can't take that idea that seriously compared to them it feels like what i'm doing is i'm leading almost a privileged existence com compared to compared to most people out there that's interesting. You say that so you compare yourself to a sol a soldier in 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 the war zone, or well, the civilians who live there, or as the well. civilians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In terms of those soldiers, I mean, when you meet a an American Marine who uh, originally would have probably been about the same age as you, and now is about half your age, uh, when you meet a Marine, do you feel something in common with them? Like, hey, we've both sort of gone through the same thing, or is there an essential divide between someone who's fighting and reporting in these situations? I, I think there's a huge divide. Um, I mean, most soldiers and Marines I've met, and this this is what I always say to people who are involved in the, you know, help for heroes and wounded warriors and all that. It's You think, look, it is bad for a lot of guys, and particularly the guys who are wounded and can't get treatment, it's terrible. But you also have to understand these guys are living their dream. You know, I mean, one guy said to me, uh, he was born after 9-11, and I asked him why he had volunteered to be an infantryman in Afghanistan, and he said, I wanted a shot at the title. I wanted to fight the best, and the Taliban are the best. And when they get in gunfights, when they get to kill the Taliban, that's 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 what they've been dreaming of since they were kids. You know, <laughs> that's what they want to do with their lives, and that's completely different to, to why I'm there, and that's something I'll, I'll never understand. I mean, I've seen people, 
getting firefights and kill people and and you know think that's it that's one of life's goals achieved yeah you know i noticed when i w- uh, i don't know why i think it's because i watched um uh your interpreter's documentary right after um jo- john oliver's uh, hbo show because they were both in the hbo go there and i noticed that now that he's hosting an american show he has this weird sort of uh cross-national approach where he'll he'll use the word us to refer to americans and I, I noticed that you, when you're talking to some of the interpreters, sometimes sort of, uh, you know, like if you known like and, you know, people like us and you use American, do, are you sort of uh, bleeding your identity there? Do you consider yourself an American now? No, uh, <laughs> but, you know, Afghanistan was still a, I mean, we were the junior partner, but to, to, to the people in Afghanistan, there's, we're foreigners. Right. We're foreign forces who have come over saying we're going to make life better, but we've actually probably made life worse. And there are some people in Helmand who thought that the troops coming into their back garden were Russians. Yeah. <laughs> so to them, it makes no difference whatsoever. <laughs> you talked about um, living your dream, uh, or, or these soldiers living their dream. And uh, actually, I think the very first episode of the show, we had um, uh, Matthew Akins on the show, who I think lives in Kabul right now. Yeah. He may have moved to Pakistan. I think he's in Kabul. Yeah. And uh, he told me that when he was, or it wasn't me, it was actually with Evan, that when he was uh, like 22, he emailed like an older war correspondent and said, hey, I just, I want to go to Afghanistan. I'm just going to show up. Like, do you have any advice? And the guy like wrote back like one sentence. He was like, here's my advice. Don't go. Um, and that he viewed that as sort of like a test. It's like, hey, if you're going to listen to that guy, you shouldn't you shouldn't go. And if you're in a, what would you what would you say to to someone who wanted to to do what you do, who who was younger? I mean, I I don't think it's made me anywhere near as satisfied or happy as I thought it would oh, when I first wanted to do this. I mean, I, I think when I first started doing this, I thought that the right book or the right documentary could change the world. Yeah, and that belief has has long long <laughs> gone. At the same time, I can't really imagine anything else. I would have done with my life instead. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd love to have been an architect. Uh, I, I don't know, you know. But but I think once you once you have that feeling of I can't believe this is happening to these people, it just feels like you can't do anything else. Christopher Hitchens or Norman Finkelstein said something very similar. Like once you engage in it in some way, there's just nothing else. Nothing else you can do until there is nothing to cover, which obviously is not going to happen. So knowing that you can't change the world, how do the how do those stakes change for you? Does that change your work? I mean, I know it's a contradiction because I said that, you know, I used to think films and books could change the world and now I no longer have that belief. But yeah. I guess I do still cling on to the belief that I could quit tomorrow and it make no difference whatsoever. Yeah. But if all of us doing this in every format quit, that would make a huge difference. And then you'd see some real brutality happening all over the place. So um, there is a role for the media as a whole, just yeah. your individual documentary is probably not going to yeah yeah you just i'm a very small part of a very big machine and and i've got to try and be content with that and and also you know if if you're i mean i think journalists tend to be people who don't really fit in very well to normal society anyway they're kind of cranks and they're you know awkward and you know always getting into trouble um so from a selfish point of view it's 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 it fits with with the way i think i was and the way a lot of people i know were um and in terms of you know, if, if what you want to do is just get educated all the time and just learn things and see things, then I can't imagine a, a, a better job. Um, I mean, at one point it felt like, and it still feels like this way a bit, I, I was the first member of my family to go to university um, and I quit after a year because I hated it and it just felt like a complete waste of time. We had five one-hour lectures a week um, and I was struggling to pay my way through university, so I quit. Now it feels like I get to design my own university course every year. 
So, you know, uh, I remember at one point thinking, I don't know anywhere near enough about the American wars in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras. So I designed a series about the war on communism and how those countries are living 20 years later that meant I got to visit all those countries and read all the books and meet all of the key players as well. Um, so from a selfish point of view, if if all you really want to do is get educated and see things and learn things, there's there's no better job in the world. If if you were um, telling someone, you know, you, you basically started your career by sort of just jumping in, you know, going somewhere. Um, and I think that uh, Matthew is right that the the right kind of person to do this is someone who's not going to listen to no. So knowing that someone was going to disregard that you shouldn't do this, you're going to kill yourself, and also you're not going to end up be happy. What sort of on the ground advice would you give someone to who who was just going to show up in, in a conflict zone? Well, what have you learned that is sort of a primer? I mean, what's the what's the George Orwell quote? Um, the hardest thing is to realize what's in front of your nose every day. Like, I don't think you can actually teach that much. I think if you listen to your, you know, your curiosity and your and your compassion, your human side, that will tell you far more than than any education or any any you know mentorship from someone could ever could ever tell you. And and if if you are curious about things, then then just go and just follow it wherever it takes you. And and I'm probably pr- probably if you're starting out now, you've probably got an idea right in front of your nose that you know pretty well already. You know some of the main characters that you could make an incredible, important story out of. And unfortunately now, and after ten years of doing this, I, I, there are still some trips where I've had to fund it completely myself and then try and sell it afterwards. I think that's what you have to do now. That don't expect someone to commission you with no track record. Just, just find out what that story is that you really care about. And, it, you know, if you're curious about something, it's so easy to work hard. It's so easy to work 15 hours a day. If you're really curious about something, if it's the thing you read about when you get home from work, work out what that thing is. Just do it. Write it. Film it. Make it. Whatever it is. Then you, you, you'll stand a chance at getting work somewhere. Um, you know, I mean, at Vice now, I'm getting people all the time. Oh, I want to work at Vice. I want to work at Vice. Okay, show me something you've done. Well, I want to do this. And I want to do that. And that's not going to get you anywhere. Where someone actually says, here's a little 10-minute film I made, or here's an article I wrote you know, six months ago, and I, I went to wherever on my own. You know, oh, he's showing initiative. You know, this person really cares about that. And that, that gets you onto the much smaller pile of, of, of people who might actually get work. I think that is the best single piece of advice that anyone has given on this podcast, <laughs> and therefore I think it's as good a place to end as any. Uh, thank you very much, Ben Anderson. Thank you very much. You can watch The Interpreters, the film. You can download the free ebook. It's free, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, free. Okay, we'll be linking to that. Um, and if you have someone's HBO Go login, you can check out some of this other stuff. Um, we'll be back next week. Times are hard. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Ben Anderson, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Destiny Johnson, our sponsors, Tiny Letter and GoDaddy. If you go to GoDaddy.com right now, put in Form 199 when you're checking out, you'll get a .com domain for $1.99. That sounds great. Uh, I'm Aaron Lammer. We'll be here back next week. We are dirty work, no more. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.